This is the Cashflow Digest. My name is Matt Faircloth and me and the DeRosa team are here for you guys on a weekly basis video and broadcast recording. This is also live on our Facebook group, DeRosa Insiders. We're gonna be talking about all things real estate and all things cash flow because our company is dedicated to transforming lives through real estate and cash flow can do that. We're going to be talking about things that are affecting the real estate industry, news in the real estate investing world. And we're also going to be bringing on guests that are crushing it in the cash flow sector of real estate investing. If you guys want to join and watch the show live, please go to Facebook and look up to Rosa Insiders and join that Facebook group where we record this show every Friday at noon Eastern. Hope to see you guys there. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Cashflow Digest. My name is Matt Faircloth, and I'm super excited to be here with you guys. Not just excited because I've had lots of coffee today, um, which I have. My wife got me an espresso. You guys ever have one of those? It's a great way to drink more coffee, and it's very delicious coffee, and it kind of makes you hooked to really, really good coffee. So thanks to my wife's uh, get me an espresso. Uh, I drink a lot more coffee now, but also excited to be here with you guys. Today is the Cashflow Digest conversation. It's going to be really neat stuff. They've got a phenomenal guest. Look, I look up to this person who's because he's really been able to create some interesting stuff in real estate. Uh, has a former a career in financial planning and stocks and that kind of stuff. Still plays in that arena and now does some really neat stuff with regards to uh, multifamily. And he's going to teach us how he's able to buy properties from banks, deals uh, from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac out of receivership. He's going to teach us about buying multifamily foreclosures. Hmm. Interesting. I've got some uh, interesting stuff on the market we're going to talk about in a second here as well. But I want to just put out here, you guys can watch the show now on Spotify with the video included and everything. If you're watching the show on YouTube, grateful for you guys there. Uh, and if you're watching this show live, I'm super grateful for you guys here, here on our Facebook feed, which is on the DeRosa Insiders. Jump over to Facebook and join the DeRosa Insiders community uh, where you guys can watch live, can comment live, just like my friend Chad uh, just did. And uh, the many people watching right now are able to watch us live. So however you're watching, I'm grateful for you guys and uh, grateful for the show uh, as it means to get out the word about real estate investing to the world and to you guys and keep you guys up to date on the changing world of real estate investing. Now, speaking of the changing world, the Fed just raised the interest rates again, yet again, one more time. I'm going to talk to our guest about this because he has actually taught me a good bit about what it means for the Fed to raise the rates and why it can't stay where it is forever. Um, but they're raising the rate by another 25 basis points, which in, in plain English is 0.25%. The rate is now 5.5 and that is now effective, the, the highest that it's been in the last 20 years. Um, I want to show you guys a chart on where the rates have gone over the, over the years, right? Uh, they have not been stagnant. That's the chart of the federal funds rate for the last 60 years, right? This is what it's just done. Look at the how quickly that line has sloped up. This is what's really shaken a lot of noise out of the market and caused a lot of riffraff and stuff like that. It's typically been in, in the mid ranges here, but but recently it's spiked very, very quickly. Uh, it was it, it, uh, to the tune of zero uh, as much as two years ago, pretty much effectively zero, 5.5. This is the highest that it's been in 20 years. Look at how high it was in the, uh, back in the 80s. Our guest could probably talk to us about uh, why it was that high back then because he and I both were, were alive then, probably not active in real estate back then, but he and I have been active for decades in real estate and can talk about the changes that the markets have seen. Now, talking heads of the world are saying that the Fed is maybe done, right? But they're going to take it on a case-by-case -case basis with regards to interest rates, and maybe we're good there. But bottom line is this is going to affect, I think, a lot of things with regards to people buying homes, 
that's going to affect a lot of things with regards to people still buying multifamily and those kinds of things, but it's going to affect all things. And one good thing that people aren't really taking enough account for here is for the first time that I can remember, America can save money and grow it at a reasonable rate. So we're going to probably see more banks being willing to open up saving accounts, pushing for depository relationships to just deposit your money into a bank and make four and a half, five percent 5% interest on your money. When's the last time you could do that? So you're probably going to see more of that, which is more of an inclination towards saving, which maybe slows down the economy a little bit. And that does what the Fed is trying to do, which is to, according to them, to slow things down. Um, but unfortunately, it slows down a lot of things in our industry. Uh, so it makes things more economically stable for the rest of the world. But in our industry, where rates have spiked um, pretty much you know, by 5% um, over the last uh, year and a half, two years, it, it's changed things overnight, really. Uh, look at what it's done to the housing market for people buying secondary uh, homes, not new build homes. New construction is a whole nother angle. But what it's done to people buying homes that were owned by somebody else, like a typical home for sale, it's really put a lot of stop on that market because why would you know I, I go to move right now? If I own my home now, why would I go and sell? If my monthly payment is $3,000 a month, $2,000 a month, whatever, the rising interest rates have now effectively more than cut in half how far my money will go. So I can buy half the house if I want to keep my monthly payment the same. This will continue to put a real hinge on people buying homes. Now, this is not something that gets discussed enough. That is good for the rental market because it'll force people to have to rent. Um, not that that's a good thing or whatever. You need to have home ownership in America, but it'll also slow the frenzy of home ownership down a little bit. You'll probably continue to see pressure on the residential housing market. And the multifamily housing market will continue to cause pressure, but maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad way as well. Multifamily is way more complex. I'm going to hold off on the conversation until I get our guest on because I really want to hear what he has to say. The short-term and long-term um, results of this change in the interest rate, how it's going to affect the commercial housing market. And we've talked a lot about that already on the show. So I can't wait to get our guest on to talk about that. But the bottom line, guys, is that a lot of the talking heads that are out there are predicting that rates are where they're going to be. And so this is probably the new normal for a little while. So we need to learn how to deal with a market where it's normal to borrow money between 5 and 8%. That's my two cents on the Fed raising the rates. Maybe they're done for now. Maybe they're not. Who knows? My crystal ball is broken. But I think the best thing you can do as a real estate investor is to learn how to deal with today's market. Um, and my advice that I've been giving people is to buy deals that cash flow now. Um, look for distress, invest in distress. That's another thing we're going to talk about our guest in on how to invest in distressed uh, real estate, but also buy deals that cash flow today. The concept of buying deals that are air quote value add, meaning like, you know, it loses money today, but it might make money in the future and hopefully it'll appreciate. That's that equation's gone. It's not going to be the way you're going to want to make money in real estate from here on out. You're going to make money with deals that cash flow today. And as rates perhaps come back down, that cash flow will increase as you potentially refinance or as that spurs the market uh, towards further growth. That's what I got for you guys uh, with regards to commenting on current events. Now, I'm going to tee you guys up for my guest today. Lucky enough to call a friend. He is Bruce Fraser, no relation to the captain of our ship, the asset manager and operations manager, Justin Fraser. Those two have met, but they are not related. He's taught me a lot about rates, the stuff we've talked about today. Bruce is one of the few people that's been able to do what a lot of us want to do, which is to buy distress. A lot of you guys that like me have come out of the smaller multifamily buying duplexes, triplexes, whatever, going to foreclosure.com, um, going to a lot of the smaller real estate auction sites or buying a distressed piece of real estate, dilapidated, adding value, and then the property being worth a good bit more, a la the Burr strategy. But everybody's like, well, how do I do that in bigger multifamily? Our guest has been able to pull it off. Without further ado, guys, Bruce Fraser. What's up, man? How are you today? 
Hey, Matt. Great to see you. How are you doing? Good to see you too, brother. Um, uh, I like Captain America there. I hadn't uh, seen that before. See the cap? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a superhero junkie, man. I love superheroes. When our good friend Michael Blanc, um, unfortunately, I mean, he's all better now. And so we can say, I can talk about it. You know, I had a heart attack a couple of years ago. Yeah. I sent him a get better present. And you know what it was? I sent him Iron Man. A beautiful pewter Iron Man, because Iron Man, as asking about any superhero, I can tell you their backstory, their origin story. But Iron Man had a major problem with his heart, and that became the fuel that took him to the next level. The mechanism that he had built around himself to take care of himself, and that's how he became a superhero, is because he had a heart issue. I think he was grateful for it because uh, of the little note that I wrote him with it, and kind of gave him a feel better note and everything like that. So that's really yeah, cool. I, I did not know that about Iron Man. No. <laughs> well, I'll tell you whatever you want to know about superheroes. My favorite is Captain America, so that's why he's here on my microphone. And I also got his shield back there too. Yes, all the shield. Uh, talk to me, man. Fed just raised the rates by another quarter point. What are your thoughts on that? I know you've told me before they can't keep them where they're at for long. How this will affect the market. And, and the fact they did it. The speed at which they've raised the rates is what I think took caught everybody off guard. I mean, it, the reason that they moved so fast, it wasn't just blind irresponsibility. It's my view is that um, they have to move fast because they, they do want to try to stamp down inflation. They are the number one debtor in, in the world. And uh, mm -hmm. their debt is so significant that raising rates is catastrophic for them if they keep them high. And so they, mm -hmm. they want to hit it hard and fast so that they can move back down uh, as quickly as possible. Now, will they be able to dampen inflation or stop inflation? I really don't think so, because so much of the, the spending that's done in this country is government spending now. All these programs, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, and uh, the government is not rate sensitive. <laughs> so they're going to yeah. spend it no matter what. And so higher rates don't stop that. I, I've said this publicly a number of times, but there are really only four things they can do to, to pay the debt, because the, the debt is uh, $32 trillion now, they don't have the, ta the revenue f to, to pay that. The things they can do, they can raise taxes, cut spending, default, or they can inflate. And so our view is that it's by design. They have to inflate in order to pay the debt back someday. And so the plan is to debase the currency. Just it got a little out of control and they don't want it to be 20 to 30% like it was on most of the products that I buy. Then people get restless and it causes civil yeah. unrest and things like sure. that. My view is that they probably want it upper single digits. They'll never say that, but that's, that's the game. If a gallon of gas and a gallon of milk hit 20 bucks, you're going to have riots in the streets, you know? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, your question specifically was what are the ramifications going forward? And I think, you know, you and I uh, are in a mastermind. We've talked about it a lot in our group and we've talked about it with some other small groups and uh, the, the implications are, are significant for mm -hmm. a lot of people. We're, we're on floating rate debt. Rates were at historic lows, but they decided you know, to make the deal work. They could float and take 50 bips lower and the deal penciled better. And so mm -hmm. a lot of people are in trouble uh, because what that does, it's not just, oh, my interest went up. Well, now if they try to refinance to a fixed rate, the debt service coverage ratios aren't sufficient mm -hmm. at these higher rates to to get the proceeds they need to pay off the entire debt balance. And so they either have to bring money to a refi to closing or yeah. um, do a capital call or something like that. And there's a yeah. lot of that going on out there almost, almost with most all groups. I mean, we were all fixed just because I'm super conservative. There are a lot of groups I respect that, that are dealing with that right now. I've seen yeah. that as well. It's a weird time uh, for commercial real estate, for multifamily as well. This market made everybody look like a freaking genius the last seven or eight years. You know, I mean, these guys are buying up, buying properties for 10 million, selling them for 25 million, two years after they bought it, right? It made them look like they were a sage riding a, probably one of the best, you know, multifamily bull markets we've ever seen. Maybe that we ever will see, right? Um, fundamentals go away, you know, and it's really just about getting into the game, right? Well, that part has stopped and i think that it's the good operators hopefully i can put you and i in those quadrants of the good operators <laughs> uh 
Uh, we'll see. I think so. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think so too. I think so too. The implications aren't just within our space, uh, our industry. You look at the banking in, uh, industry and what happened there. And I, I think most people probably know this, but we had three of the four largest bank failures in history um, in the last 12 months. And those were triggered specifically by this issue. What got them is they, they took in so much cash so quickly from all the stimulus and everything else, they had to park it somewhere to make a return. And so they bought government mortgage-backed securities, but they had long duration. So they went out 10 years or more to try to get a little bit of yield. Then the, the government uh, raised rates so rapidly, uh, the, the way bonds work is the value of that diminished by roughly half. And so their uh, their assets plummeted mm-hmm. and they can, they can keep them uh, in a bucket called held to maturity, which means they don't have to tell you the value. They just are going to pretend that it's worth a full face value yeah. unless they need the liquidity. And what happened with some of the um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank in particular was that they uh, had a couple of very big depositors that pulled their money and they needed, they had to sell those and they saw what a big loss of uh, investors saw what a big loss they were taking on them and panicked. And then it just, yeah. Kind of and it went all over social media and, yeah. you know, Peter Schiff or whatever was broadcasting before you knew it. You know, the world we live in where any everybody's holding around a big megaphone, people start shouting in the megaphone that, hey, the sky is falling at SVB. Do you think that the bank failures are done or do you think we're going to see more? I think that that specific problem is pervasive throughout the banking industry. It wasn't mm-hmm. specific to those those banks. What the government did, they came in and said, uh, okay, we will uh, we'll let you borrow against those diminished value bonds at full face value. So I think it was one year or two years. So they bought time so that it wouldn't keep snowballing. But what do they do at the end of the year? There's nothing more permanent than a, a temporary government solution, right? And so um, yeah. I think that they'll wave their magic wand and pretend everything's okay for now. I think that the pain is throughout. And while the Fed was saying um, you know, the, the financial system is strong and resilient, if you look at their own internal reports, which are publicly available, I think it was something like 760 banks had uh, over 50% impairment in value. That's a big problem. You know, how it plays out, I don't know if we'll have more failures or not, but it will impact uh, lenders' mm-hmm. uh, willingness to lend. Lending standards will tighten. We're trying to work out a development deal right now to build a little 30-unit apartment building um, in Jersey, right? The banks that we've talked to are uber depository sensitive. All of a sudden, it's like everybody wants 10, 15, 20% in deposits of the loan amounts. So if you're going to go borrow $5 million, you got to go find somewhere cash to deposit with that bank. I've always seen brick and mortar banks require that just as a cursory, it's almost like it's a courtesy. It's, it's so it's less of a pain in their neck that the operating account you're using for the real estate uh, has its operating account at their bank, mainly so they can do direct deposit and make sure they get paid, right? That's not the number one reason. That's what they tell you is the reason. What the reason is, is if they have a hundred grand in deposits, they can loan a million dollars. And so right. Uh, every little bit that they can scrape together helps their ability to lend and make money. And so that's what it's about. Think about that, guys. They're great to be a bank, right? Some days. Um, If a bank gets 100 grand, they can loan out 10x of that depository relationship, you know, with with OPM, with the Fed's money, with other people's money behind them and everything like that. So thank you for your thoughts on the the Fed. (laughs) I want to transition real quick. Can you give us real quick your backstory? A lot of the folks in our circles like to buy these the pretty stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They like to buy the pretty stuff that they can put on their Facebook page. Uh, you and I are the few in our mastermind groups that are kind of the scrappos buying the class C stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'll um, just put the numbers on my Facebook page, right? Not the, uh, not the picture of the property. That drove it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Real quick, give you a little bit of your backstory to our audience here. I, I think I came out wired as a finance guy. I just, I love numbers, a way to structure thought, but for years I, I actually ran a hedge fund. Uh, my, my background to get to real estate is a little bit different than a lot of people. A lot of people like you were mentioning earlier, you did, did a house or two or some duplexes and kind of built their way into it. Uh, mine is really more of a strategic investment decision. And so um, I ran the fund for a, a decade. It was actually an options fund and it was managed to make a, a steady return no matter what. And, and we actually did that, including 
during the financial crisis, we were actually at our all time highs. And mm. it wasn't because we bet on the collapse, we just didn't get hit. And so uh, I had been an, an active real estate investor with one partner uh, prior to that. And we literally sold all of our real estate in, in 07 and uh, peeled the last one off in late 07. That one was a little bit too close to uh, for comfort. But uh, so avoided the, the mess of 08 and 09 and started Elkhorn Capital Partners in 2010. And in 2010, the banking system was a lot worse than it is now even, and banks were just simply not lending. They couldn't, they mm. didn't have the capacity to, they were in trouble with all their loans. So the first couple of years, the deals that we did were just uh, cash deals. They were, you know, we were doing hard money lending, we were doing smaller single uh, single um, family rentals, mm. duplexes, bought some assets from banks directly. Uh, things went well, and a couple years later, banks were lending again and we really didn't like having to be so transactional. We wanted to just own some assets because of my inflation view. We knew the Fed would start printing money at some point. And uh, so got into multifamily and that's, you know, we're singularly focused now on multifamily. We target hundred to 300 unit deals. We don't want to target bigger deals on that because then we're competing against big institutional players and their return requirements aren't as fun as we would like to make. And so they don't pay too much and we can't win those deals. Uh, so we, we kind of have a niche and it's what we do. A uh, couple years into it, as you mentioned, we, we got into distress situation deals. Not really sure why we started doing that. I just like to fix things, I guess. And yeah. lenders like working with us on them because they see our track record. I don't want to brag myself too much, but it, it's a good track record. Uh, they, they believe that we can do it and they've seen us do it. And they know that we do what we say we're going to do. And so if we go to Freddie Mac and say, we can get this off your balance sheet in 30 days, they know that we mean it. And it is a ton of work. It sounds sexy when you look at the numbers and everything else, but it is a ton of work. That first year or two is, is they call it heavy lift for a reason. It's you know a lot of a lot of stress and a lot of work and surprises, rarely positive surprises. Uh, but the fun part is you you have an absolute certain path to creating uh, value for the property. And mm-hmm. you know, if you have a seventy five percent vacant property, if you can fill up those units, you know it's going to be worth more. And so sure. um, it's bringing those units back online. We did a Freddie Mac foreclosure. Bought it from them December of 21, a couple months. When we took over, it was making about 45K in revenue a month. And uh, this month, I think it's going to do 160K in revenue. So Proof's in the so, pudding, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We, we bought some from regional banks as well, oversee an asset for a bank that they knew they were going to foreclose it. It was just a mess. And uh, we didn't want to buy it at that point in time with uh, the city was involved in, in the deal. The quick short story on it is a uh, single family home builder had bought it, ripped a ton of the units out. They were going to do a ton of rehab and didn't permit any of it. And so mm. the city got involved. It got really contentious and we just didn't know whether the city was going to play fair with us or not. And so we, uh, we, we went in and helped. They paid us to, to oversee it for them for a period of time, but um, we had an option to buy it. And once we did, we've, we've improved the results dramatically, brought most of the units back online. And now the present son actually lives in the property. I mean, so they've loaned to us on another asset as well. They're big fans. They've seen firsthand what we can do. So it is a lot of work though. I mean, I wouldn't encourage everybody to go do it. It, It's uh, lots of days. It's not fun. You got to really have like a strong team that's able to literally strap up and and deal with a lot of the issues that happen at at properties. Properties occupied at 25, 30, 40%. I've been there and these are not properties that uh, any owner would be proud of to drive around. Crime element tends to find properties like that. You, You tend to have vandalism. Which string do I pull first? What do I deal with first at a property like this? If it's a 25% occupied property, those are people that don't have other options of places to live. And so they're there for a reason. You know, it's not being managed well. I, I doubt work orders are being done. So yeah, you you are really um, taking, it's a, a battle to take control of a property like that, not yeah. like the, the homeless people or the drug dealers or whatever. We've had homeless people living in units. We had the maintenance tech. Um, I mean, he was corrupt. He was leasing out vacant units 
two homeless yeah. people. It's yeah, crazy it's stuff. Enough. We should write a book someday about all the stories we have. I mean, I've walked into what I thought was a vacant unit before, and there were three guys standing there grilling inside. And <laughs> <laughs> You've got to have some red flag, a, a third rail you won't touch or whatever. Let's assume that a deal shows up that's in the geographic buy box that you have. It's in the size buy box that you have. Do you have anything that's just a, like, I'm not going to touch it because of this? There's there's a whole list of things that we will do that a lot of people wouldn't. Uh, we're not going to deal with problems if it's priced as a, as a stabilized deal that doesn't have those problems. We don't buy chiller properties. They tend to trade more cheaply, but not cheaply enough. I don't like the risk profile for the property because it could be a $5 part that takes that chiller down and your entire property's hot. In, oh, yeah. in, the, in the south and midwest guys. that is not a good thing i mean it, for occupancy especially if the part with supply chain the way it is takes a few weeks to get so um, when you can we work have, out of it we bought a boiler chiller deal in uh kentucky yep. where it was a 220 unit property and 90 of them were on boiler chiller i'm um, trying to run a boiler chiller for a little bit i started to see problems and before you know it it's like oh man the boiler's down and i'm like okay now that means 90 people don't have heat we would yeah. buy one if we're planning to convert it so i, I should yeah footnote that and we have done that we we actually had a property that had a chiller on it and the chiller wasn't actually the issue it was in pretty good condition it was the pipes that run through all the units so you couldn't even repair them easily we could spend four or five hundred thousand and, and impact all the units go through them tear out the walls and change the pipes or we could have spent another hundred or two yeah. and put in all new individual seasons so that's what we did and then they, <laughs> and they can heat and cool whenever they want and you can yeah. you can get a better great attendant typically because they have their own thermostat and you know all that so yeah, yeah there's a lot of positives to doing it but you know, that's not a cheap changeover we had one probably at least six grand a unit. You don't have to deal as much with uh with heat uh, as we do because you're down in, in the Texas Oklahoma. We were doing a deal up in Kentucky, and we had a uh, boiler. It was in the middle in the winter, so the boiler's running, and the pipes ran underground. Uh, the boiler was in one building, and it hit that boiler serviced a few buildings in a row. We, I went out there in the dead of winter, and you could see steam coming up from the parking lot. In, in layman's terms, the pipes are leaking underground. Okay, we have to take this out because this is going to be whack-a-mole. Uh, people watching here, again, they're used to, like I said, duplexes, triplexes, maybe even a little bit bigger a commercial property, going to just foreclosure.com, seeing stuff coming off of the bankrolls, or even calling a local bank talking to the loss and mitigation department and finding something that's in foreclosure that they can pick up. Whole different conversation, three-digit unit multifamily, right? How does one negotiate these kinds of things to the point where the bank takes you seriously to the point where you're able to get it yourself in the door on larger multifamily, which is something not many, not many folks have been able to do. So how does one expand on, into it? One is thinking like the bank. You're there mm -hmm. to solve their problem. And yeah. their problem is they don't want to have special vehicles that own these <laughs> be a non-performing assets and they don't want to be landlords. And so yeah. to be able to solve that problem for them is, is extremely helpful. The, the deal I mentioned a minute ago where the home builder had torn out so much of it, the bank had it in their non-performing special asset vehicle. And they said, can you get this closed this quarter? And we were not even a whole month left and it was maybe three weeks. And I said, yeah, absolutely. If you're the lender, <laughs> that's absolutely. So we, uh, yeah, we got it done in about three weeks and we frankly just told them the terms that we were going to need on a loan. Like, this is what we need the loan to look like and we'll do it. And they did it because they did not want to be a landlord. Mm. That's not the business they're in. And so they were thrilled to get off their balance sheet quickly. Ways that you can make yourself attractive to a bank is is not to play games. Recognize what the issue is for them and they, they don't want the asset. And so you know, don't try to just be a low ball or something like that. Offer them a fair price, giving them confidence that you can execute. So offer them the fair price for it. And fair can be discounted for sure, but don't try to play games with them and steal it or something like that. Like once you agree uh, in a number, don't go out there and say, well, these roofs are nearing the end of their useful life. Yeah. So I want to credit yeah. for the roof. No, no, no. You just get it done. Close it. Yeah. You know? They want to be confident that you are going to close. They don't want to go down the path for a month or two with, with one party 
and then end up having to go down the path again with another party because of that. What does that make them? That makes them a, a landlord. They want to get well, an office quickly. As you yeah. said before, right? I used to be in corporate. I worked for a Fortune 500 company. Quarterly and annual performance became the gospel. Those that company I was with had to report to Wall Street. When a bank oh, wow, tells yeah. you they want it off the books that quarter. We don't want to show it on our books. Yeah, I want this off our books by the end of the quarter so I can show the street that I got better. My books are that much better. Look how much distressed assets we got off. I'll, I'll take it a step further. It doesn't have to be a foreclosed the deal. I mean, one way that you can help a bank is say, hey, we're experienced, we're adults at the table here and we have the capital. Is there something that is not performing that you don't want to foreclose? Yeah. And we, we have had multiple bridge lenders that we've actually used and they've seen our results on what we do introduce us in the last month or two to borrowers of loans that are non-performing. You know, yeah. They'll say, borrower A, meet Elkhorn Capital Partners. You guys go work out something because we're not going to extend your loan. And yeah. some of those uh, owners will be serious enough to um, understand why that introduction was made. And some are still trying to pretend that they can get you know the full market. Value. I had one of these introductions made to me and I said, you know, honestly, it's a terrible asset. We hate the asset. Uh, and it was too, a little bit too small for us. It's about a 60, 70 unit deal and our, our head of asset management would probably kill me if we if we actually did buy it because she she hates the asset too. But it is a deal we would do at the right price. If we were to do a deal like that, it has to has to make sense. And so mm -hmm. that person has to get serious. And I just I laid it all out in an email to him and said, hey, this is what I see and what I, I think. I figured it was just going to be yeah you know, he would be mad and just delete the email. You know what? He ended up calling me a couple yeah. times because <laughs> he knew we understood the situation and yeah. we could do it if we came to terms. How likely is the bank willing to recast the loan? That's bank terms, meaning like to loan you the money for a property that's either owned or distressed by them. How likely is the bank willing to stay in, uh, in these situations? Yeah, I've seen both ways. I've seen the example that I gave where I just said, Hey, these, this is the structure we would need to get it done. And they can be motivated enough to, to give you a new loan. It'll be at the current terms, things like that. Not probably the prior, but, uh, there was a situation which was probably the worst property we ever bought. It was, I couldn't even say it say it was a C. I mean, it was a D asset. It was one of these 25% occupied homeless mm -hmm. people living in it. You know, it was rough, mm -hmm. uh, but it was the armpit of the neighborhood. You know, I, I mm -hmm. knew that if we went in there and fixed it and made it performing again, that we could get out uh, with a nice profit. And, you know, frankly, we do the city a favor and uh, we, it's not an asset we want to own long-term, but it is one that we've largely turned around now. But that one, the bank that was involved said, you know, we will not do a new loan on this. They just wanted away from the asset. You know? so, yeah. So I've seen both sides of it. You just have to feel them out. I've seen that it. too, where it's like, you know what? Just, it's, it's like, there's just bad juju on it. It's been tainted. Our executives making the decision just wants to pull the plug and just get out. Good luck. But as Bruce had said, you guys, if uh, if you present it to the bank, is this is how this works. Uh, especially like you want to close in three weeks. Uh, I don't have time to go get it reappraised and recast new debt on it or whatever. You guys are going to have to help me figure that out. You've seen financial markets uh, grow and shift or whatever where do you think multifamily is going in the next uh say one to two years and for those listening here that want to continue to stay relevant want to grow and expand or even get started in multifamily what is the angle of attack that folks watching should have i was listening to your your intro and <clears throat> i agree with what you were saying i think yeah. that if, if you can make it underwrite and cash flow now with these yeah. rates Obviously, I think that rates are going to come down in the future because the Fed can't afford to keep them up here. Yeah. And so it's not that I think they're going to kill inflation. I don't think they'll get inflation killed, uh, but uh, I think they're still going to lower rates. The Fed has a bad hand. I mean, there are no good choices. They only have bad choices. <laughs> and you know, their hand will be forced. They'll ultimately have to decide between either sustained inflation or some kind of system-threatening financial crisis. So mm -hmm. Historically, if you look at you know, what's happened with other governments and other countries, they will choose uh, to maintain the system at the expense of the currency. Leaders always do because maintain, you know, continue to do debt and, and things like that keeps them in power, keeps them 
you know, having influence and they will always pick to destroy the currency over losing their power and their way of life. That's our bet. We, we believe in math and <laughs> the math says that that's how it's going to go. I, I think the current environment is, it's going to be a, a vetting for sure. I mean, we're seeing a lot of new players that had come in that yeah. weren't ready for this and they're, you know, they were on floating or they just, uh, all, they weren't ready for the in, increased expenses. You know, they underwrite it too tightly. They paid too much. And um, those people are going to, go away and lick their wounds, I think. And I think in the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to have a lot of opportunity with our focus because there is a lot of distress. And it's not just mm -hmm. the ugly distressed properties right now. We're seeing distress in, in pretty stuff. You know, some mm -hmm. of those $100 million assets, people may have overpaid, but they did it and they, they did floating rate. We've seen deals where the escrows were eight grand a month. Now they're half a million a month. I mean, you yep. just can't feed that very long. And so yep. uh, there, there are going to be a lot of things to trade. There's going to be a lot of equity that's lost, but there, that creates opportunities for those that yep. are not having to deal with it. And so uh, we're, you know, we're geared up and we're, we're ready to take advantage of some of that. And, and some of it would just be, Hey, this is too hard. This isn't nearly as much fun as it used to be. No. <laughs> and so there'll be some owners that just, you know, they'll sell for that reason. Uh, Screw this. Yeah. This used yeah. to be a part. We, we actually, by the way, just saw our first, uh, real estate deal, uh, that I've seen in a long time where the seller is trying to sell it for less than what he paid for it two years ago, which means mm -hmm. they are underwater. They're in distress. They're like, that's it. Get me out. And I think it'll be a lot more of that. I think there's going to be a lot of that. We have a lender friend that had been encouraging us to start investing down in Houston. We had a, a number of reasons we didn't like Houston, but he was prodding us enough where I said, okay, we'll come down. We'll do a field trip, look around and meet, you know, do the road show with a bunch of brokers. I came up with more reasons. I don't like it. Um, not the least of which is the, the humidity, but what was interesting when they learned that we did distress stuff six months ago, they had just stacks of stuff to show us already. And mm -hmm. these were people that were saying, just take it for the note. Oh, I don't care about my equity. I just don't want a foreclosure. Bringing it home here. This one of our uh, watchers said this, Hey, judging by, this is funny. Whenever I talk to Bruce, it, it's so it, I, I talk to other real estate people behind them. I see pictures of properties, PLs, and stuff like that. When you talk to Bruce, there's always charts and stocks and options and those kinds of things behind Bruce. Those do not look like real estate charts. <laughs> My guess is uh, you have not left your private equity world behind you or your hedge fund world of options and trades and that kind of stuff. Port Belly Futures going on back there or something like that, right? How do you see real estate playing into a true balanced portfolio for someone that really wants to be truly passive? How does real estate play into that passive model for somebody that probably wants to do stuff like you got going on there? I say this with a couple of caveats. I mean, I still still have a business that's in the public markets. We have a very effective uh, quantitative strategy that, that's run a uh, separate business from Alcorn. Uh, yeah, I, I am aware of all the different options out there. I've been in the public markets and a professional investor uh, for decades. And you know, we know that inflation is going to continue. We absolutely know it. That's the math. And so um, knowing that, how do you best position for that? Well. You could try to make uh, a return in the public markets that's higher than the inflation rate, and and we, we have been successful at doing that. But more certainly, is you trade your paper dollars for something that's real. That could be mm. um, you know real assets or hard assets, as they're called, and that can be real estate. It can be houses. It can be multiplexes. It could be um, retail stores. It could be timber property. It could be oil and gas. Um, mineral Good rights, they're, they're all different ways. For me, yeah. I think the best risk reward is multifamily personally, because mm -hmm. you know if you have a retail center, let's say, um, then you're you're tied to the ups and downs of, of the economy and business cycles. If you have, um, even if you have a strip center and you have an anchor of a CBS or something like that in it, well, um, they probably have a 20 year lease, which a couple of years ago would have sounded great. But the problem with that now is they have a predefined step up on, on inflation and rents every year. Well, that's no fun. If if you have a 2% step up every year and inflation is 20 or 30%, you're getting hammered. And yep. so that's why I like multifamily. You have you know 200 unit property. I have someone coming up for a lease renewal. I'll, 
almost every day, you know, every, mm-hmm. uh, certainly every week. And I can adjust to the changing environment immediately. And so uh, I can raise rents if needed. And our, our portfolio, we're raising rents on average, probably 10 to 20% across the whole portfolio right now. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's very helpful, especially if you're on fixed rate. Debt. Yeah. America needs a place to live. They certainly need places to shop too, but the Walmart that you might own under a triple net lease could certainly get put under by Amazon overnight. Yeah. You know? That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And um, people need a place to live. And, and if you look at kind of the trends with renting, um, you know, millennials have really been trained to rent everything they, they use. I mean, they rent their music, Spotify. They don't buy mm-hmm. their music. Um, they, you know, Netflix, they don't buy a DVD for a movie. You know, they, they have a service, a subscription. Yeah. So they want to use it for as long as they need it. They want to rent it, right. you know? So they've, they've been trained to uh, to rent everything. That coupled with inflation really squeezing people at the lower socioeconomic level, they're not going to be uh, homeowners, most likely. They're going to be renters, lifetime renters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate it socially. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I can't change the market. And regardless of what my political beliefs are, my belief on whether or not my tenants should be you know, able to own a home or whatever, this is the way the economy is. Back to the question, in a balanced portfolio, I wouldn't say a balanced portfolio is really the right thing to do. I would be very heavy in hard assets. And yeah. uh, that's, you know, you look at, do what I say and not what I do or whatever the saying is, but um, I spend yeah. almost all my time on the multifamily space and, and hard assets. And I believe that that's yeah. what is the best, uh, best outcome. But you, but you have a background in options, commodities, those kinds of things. And that, so you know how to, you know, turn, turn a dollar into $2 pretty quick on those fancy charts back there, but it's not, it's not for the faint of heart either. Um, as I, as I know personally, cause I've tried that kind of stuff. And I mean, it's, it's, uh, it ends up being an emotional roller coaster ride, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and you can't affect the outcome, right? You can, no. you can improve your probabilities. Um, you know, if you know a bunch about it, you can put less money at risk and use options, things like that, but you're still subject to somebody else, what they say overnight or what they do. In real estate, we, we can't control everything. We can't control yeah. insurance costs, but we can go force the um, the value appreciation ourselves. And you know, we can take yeah. a twenty five percent occupied property and make it a ninety five percent occupied property by fixing the units and making them livable. Or we can make it nicer and so charge more rent. We can impact the value directly ourselves, and we can work harder and get better information in the real estate world. And that tends to be illegal in the public market world. So <laughs> you certainly have a lot more control. Yeah, yeah, you certainly have a lot more control. And I've I've found real estate to be a lot more forgiving for those that are willing to hold it long term. Um, mm-hmm. Even through now, through the weird time we got now with high rates and high insurance or whatever, yeah, you absolutely. give real estate another five years. I guarantee it'll outperform most other investments, even if it's weird for like a year or two. Yeah. Um, it will get look out of weird drill and go back up. What's that? I mean, look at 08 and 09 when it was a catastrophe, supposedly in real estate. I would kill to buy it 08 and 09 prices. Okay. Right. On that note, guys, I want to bring it home. Hey, Bruce, how do people, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, want to track your company or just uh, hear more about what you guys do, how do they reach out to you or find out more about uh, Elkhorn Capital Partners? Yeah, um, you know, it's elkhornpartners.com. You can go to that and uh, we have a, a portal you can register for to, to learn about our deals and things like that. Or you feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, not on the Elkhorn site on LinkedIn. It's just me personally, Bruce Razor. Uh, I don't post a lot, but when, when I do post, you've seen it, Matt, I'm sure. But um, it's, it's well thought out macroeconomic it's stuff that yeah. try to try to really call it down and make it simple for people. Um, but I think it's uh, we've gotten great feedback on, on that as well. Good stuff. Okay, guys, be sure you check out Bruce. Uh, Bruce has been awesome, man. I think we'll have to have you as a recurring guest to talk about the market, talk about the, you know, for you and I to break out our tea leaves and our crystal ball, talk about what's happening in the future and stuff like that. So I uh, appreciate you hopping on on short notice to join us today. You know, one thing I can guarantee is that dollars five years from today are going to buy less than they do today. And so, yep. you know, reposition your dollars into hard assets. And I think you will be um, very pleased. Yeah. Yeah.
Absolutely. Uh, words of wisdom, guys. Uh, Bruce, thank you for joining us uh, in, in that. Uh, guys, great, uh, great conversation in the Cashflow Digest yet again. Um, the world is continuing to change as it always will. It's important to keep your ear to the ground. Stay in touch with the media. Stay in touch with what's happening with regards to financial metrics like interest rates and that kind of stuff. But what I got from Bruce today is that the best way to make lots of money in real estate is to you know buy low, sell high. And if you're going to be able to buy low in real estate, you got to be able to buy properties that maybe are not as pretty and shiny today as they could be in the future. So find deals, find opportunities, be willing to do what others aren't willing to do, meaning like buy properties that are 20, 30% occupied and make them make them 100% valued. If you can't do that yourself, get maybe become a part of a team that can or find yourself someone, find yourself someone as a team member that's able to do the hard work, the heavy lifting and turning some of these properties around. Lots of money that's going to be made in the next couple of years in real estate, guys. Keep your ear to the ground, build your team, build your systems so that you're ready to pounce on opportunities as they come up. And for goodness sake, don't just wait for the market to change. Be building your systems, building your team, building your everything now. We at DeRosa can help you do that. Be, make sure you're a member of the DeRosa Insiders community. Stay in touch with us on education vehicles and on new opportunities as we present them either to invest or to learn from. Guys, Thank you, thank you for being a part of the Cashflow Digest community and for being a part of DeRosa Insiders. Um, if you guys are watching this on YouTube or on Spotify, hop over to Facebook and join the DeRosa Insiders community, which is a free community um, here on Facebook. You guys can watch the show live uh, with me and all the guests we have. Lots of great content coming down the pipeline Friday, every Friday, noon Eastern. Thank you guys. Appreciate you guys for watching. We will see you next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Hey guys, Matt Faircloth here. Thank you for listening again to the Cashflow Digest. I really appreciate you guys doing that. If you guys want to hear more about what DeRosa Group has to offer, go to DeRosa Group, D-E-R-O-S-A group.com, DeRosa group.com online. You can hear about all the great things that we offer from an educational standpoint and passive investment standpoint on our website. See you there. And if you guys want to join our online community, DeRosa Insiders on Facebook, where you can watch this program get recorded every Friday at noon Eastern, and you can come on as even a guest or ask questions on the show. We hope to see you guys on our online community, Derosa Insiders. See you there.